Sure, um, Matt's probably very nervous right now because I'm walking up here with my Bible, which is the NIV. And he wants me to read this out of the extra special version, the ESV. But I do have it printed out in the ESV version. Coincidentally, this passage, as well as some verses that follow, are the passages that uh, brought, me, brought me to Christ. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, Give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water. I don't know how tired you are this morning. However tired I was of various things, I'm more tired of my lack of administrative abilities than I was about 25 minutes ago. There are lots of kinds of fatigue, though, you know? There's physical, has to do with how much sleep we've had, how, what we ate and how much we ate, uh, relative hormone fluctuations, whether we're in shape or out of shape. There's physical fatigue. Jesus is certainly experiencing in John for spiritual fatigue. I've noticed increasingly that uh, men and women that are followers of Jesus over time 
develop what seems to be an increasing sadness because we look around the world and we know the hope and the peace and the life and the justice of Jesus of Nazareth and we turn on the news and it's not happening around the world. And I think there's a spiritual fatigue that comes along with that. Jesus was spiritually tired in John chapter 4. If you read John chapters 2 and 3, you notice that um, it fatigues him that people are not receiving his message family and and friends and people from his own race and religion are not understanding him and he's tired there's emotional fatigue right you experience grief anger sadness lots of other emotions and we get tired from that whether it's legitimate or not it can wear us out emotionally mental fatigue right apparently that's what was happening to me this morning that i forget to ask the members of the congregation to commit to the new members Maybe it's I'm full. Have you ever been in a meeting and you're like, I can't take in any more information? It's really bad if it happens at the beginning of a meeting, too. (laughs) Jesus was, I think, tired for all of those reasons. And some of that is mysterious. What uh, theologians call the kenosis is described in Philippians 2 is how it is that Jesus is fully God and fully man at the same time. How it is that he is those things and yet can experience the fatigue he can experience the fatigue all those kinds of fatigue of the human and still be fully divine so there's a mystery involved in that and yet it's very clear in the text that he's tired in all those ways that i mention and he meets a tired woman and this woman i've heard um described harshly and and part of the reason is Uh, We know that obviously her community thought low of her for a bunch of reasons. But I want us to set that aside for a second, whatever our opinion is, if you've studied the scripture on John chapter 4, and I want us to notice that she's tired. And the reason she's tired is she has the same desire, the bottom of her heart, that you do and that I do, which was to be known and loved. That's the fundamental Christian, not Christian, human desire, is to be known and loved and maybe it was mostly the choices she made that got her to the to the rough position she was in some of you are familiar with john chapter 4 and you know we didn't read the whole text that's because we're going to use the rest of the text later in this series we're doing a series on the questions people ask jesus we're not trying to mine all of the theological truths from each one of the passages but we are trying to by faith picture Jesus as he spoke in response to good questions and hear his voice by faith as he responds. We spent a few weeks looking at the questions his friends asked him and we're going to spend the month of February looking at the questions women asked him, which was remarkable that his presence was such that in a culture where this didn't happen, women felt comfortable asking him oftentimes persistent questions and then he answers them beautifully. So I believe this woman is very tired. It's obvious. And it might have been mostly her choices. But it was also her culture. And you know, sometimes political speech makes it out that people who don't have it as well as other people, it's their choices. And sometimes political speech makes it out that it's, no, it's, they are oppressed by the culture. It's got to be some kind of a mixture. She's in a patriarchal culture where it was very easy to divorce someone for a man, and very difficult for a woman. But I think we shortchange those discussions a lot of times. She was a judged woman. That's why she's out in the middle of the day. The sixth hour is noon. 
Um, she was not understood and she was alone. She was fatigued. Can you picture it? I have three different images to help us, you know, kind of think about it. Um, this is a reminder that Jesus is not a 19th century European man. Go ahead to the next one. I think sometimes we picture it like this, like she was, you know, sort of a challenging woman. But go ahead and go to the third one. But as we imagine this in our minds, as we attempt to hear and to see by faith the text given to us in John 4, what I want us to notice is these are two fatigued people, physically, spiritually, emotionally, perhaps mentally. And the reason the story is beautiful is because of Jesus. And because through the woman's questions, we learn about his heart for us. One of the things Jesus is tired of is divisions. You notice they talk in the conversation about where to worship. They talk about the way Samaritans worship and the way Jews worship. And John mentions a couple of times that Jews don't have dealings with Samaritans. He doesn't mention that. He says that line exactly once, but he mentions it other times implicitly because he was shocked. John was shocked to find Jesus talking with not only a woman, but a Samaritan woman. All those divisions are things that Jesus is tired of. And so in his ministry, he not only pushes back with his words, but he pushes back with his very presence. He sits down with this woman and converses with her, and she's shocked. You know, for us, uh, a place of worship is not as important to us, but in Middle Eastern religions, the place matters a lot, and the Jews and the Samaritans disagreed. And you know that the Samaritans were incredibly pious people, very pious. They kept the Sabbath, they studied the law of Moses, they accepted circumcision, and anyone who's not pious doesn't do that. Um, they worshiped very piously, and yet they were judged so harshly by each other, the Jews and the Samaritans. And Jesus is tired of that. Everything about her ritually for a Jewish person is unclean. He's not supposed to talk to her. He's not supposed to touch that vessel. He's not supposed to dignify her as a human because of her different religion and gender. And that is not what the gospel does. It doesn't free us into division. It frees us into neighbor love. One of the things Jesus is tired of here are the racial problems. I don't know about you, but I, I continue to learn how large of a problem in the world racism really is. And our culture wants it to be wrong, but we're not involved. And I don't want to talk for 20 minutes about this because I want to talk about Jesus and the good news, but we notice that Jesus is doing something, modeling something and teaching something where he's pushing back on the problem of racism. And in my opinion, the most bananas part, oh yeah, I said bananas, of the gospel of Jesus is that he left and entrusted to his followers that they, his mission of proclaiming of the gospel and then learning to love neighbor. Which neighbors? All of them. So he's pushing back on racial divides between Jews and Samaritans, and it overlaps with us today. I'll tell you the way that this pains me today the most. It's actually in our presbytery. 
Presbytery is a regional gathering of pastors and some elders for accountability. There are all sorts of things that we do. And as I listen to the couple of pastors who are not white, and I ask them about implicit bias, they either tell me something very sobering and humbling or tears just spring up into their eyes. And I'm like, this is a group of pastors who aren't racists, but for whom implicit bias is everywhere and harms our brothers and sisters in Christ. And I hear people say all the time, like what the dominant culture is supposed to do is listen to the other cultures and hear if they're oppressed. And I'm like, yeah, that's right, and then I don't do it. And I've started just in the last year asking questions here and they're trying not to ask leading questions and their answers are so humbling to me. I encourage you to listen to the people in your life that do not look just like you. I encourage you to ignore the all or nothing um, racist pushes sometimes that we see on social media and in the culture and realize that you live in a cursed world and one of the easiest ways to violate love for neighbor in a cursed world is through judging those that are not part of the dominant culture. And it is part of the role of a follower of Jesus because that is not what his gospel purchases, division. That's not it. The other thing that I think Jesus is tired of is the division between men and women, especially in that culture. He's tired of the fact that this woman received no honor or dignity from anyone, religiously or otherwise, her own people, perhaps because of choices, but also because of the culture, and definitely not from Jews. So what does he do? He sits down with her, listens to her, dignifies her role in society. Uh, I have had an interesting relationship as a human and, and now as a pastor with uh, a disagreement among churches. I don't know if you know about this. Some churches have women in every office of the church. Others have them in almost no offices. I don't know if you knew that. Perhaps you're not aware of the Catholic religion. It does it a little bit differently than Presbyterians. I grew up in a church that had women pastors. When I went to college, I went to a church that did not have women pastors or elders. Then I interned for a church that did. Then I worked for 12 years for a church in St. Louis that did not have women as elders. And when I applied to the barn, they had just released a statement that they're going to continue to affirm that women can serve in the office of elder. So I was like, well, I should study this. Not because I want to change the church I'm coming into, but I really didn't study it. And I started. And I've come to the conclusion in our... Uh, elders have studied this along with me, and I'll let them speak for themselves. You can talk to any of the ones that served the last two years about our studying of this. I believe our church can be a little more consistent in affirming women in every role of the church. Now, I'm not quitting. We're not hiring a woman. It's going to be me most of the time that preaches. But on March 31st, I've invited Bonnie Gatchel to preach here. She is a pastor in our presbytery. She runs a ministry called Route One. She has 17 volunteers that are also going to retreat with us this year, which is really cool. Go into strip clubs and they befriend the women there because that's legal trafficking. And it's horrific. And it's very hard to leave. And I've heard Bonnie preach and she's good. She's licensed, ordained, passed all the same tests that I passed. And she's going to come here and preach. And each week as I talk about... Um, Jesus and how he responded to women, I'm going to talk about this debate a little bit. Not because I'm trying to change your mind, 
but because our church is going to be a little more consistently egalitarian. Now, the two terms, just like in a lot of our political discussions, are not good terms. But if you want to read about this, it's the complementarian, that's no women elders, or the egalitarian. Now, of course, not compliment like I'm saying something nice about you. Compliment as in we have overlapping gifts and they're complementary. My Midwestern accent, not very specific with respect to uh, vowels. Those of you that grew up in this part of the country are like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you say pen when you mean pen, right, Grant? Um, and the reason those terms are not very good is, of course, men and women are different and have complementary roles in one another's lives, especially in marriage. And, of course, everyone is made in the image of God and therefore is equal. That's why I don't think the terms are very good. So in addition to pushing back on racial divisions, Jesus is pushing back on how women were treated, especially then, but continues on to today. And I believe our church has a little bit of work to do in getting more consistent in affirming women in every position in the church. We don't have any money to hire another pastor, but every other position, you know, you got. So Jesus is tired of divisions, and so he offers himself. And this is where the gospel is so big and so different than what we think when we're approaching something religious in our mind. Jesus describes himself as living water, which is both a description of him as the way, and also a, a gentle nod that at a well, it's still water, right? So he's saying it's not found here. What I'm talking about is not found. So she knows he's talking about water that's constantly running, but she also knows he's talking about something that's a metaphor that transcends the well itself and her thirst for the rest of her life. He says that trusting him is always satisfying to your soul. And this is where we find ourselves in her question. Don't we wonder if trusting Jesus can satisfy our soul, actually give it peace and calm? Psalm 131 says, like a weaned child with its mother is my soul within me calmed and quieted. You see, I think we approach religious questions and religion generally wondering if it is simply a set of practices and propositions. I do some spiritual things. I believe some spiritual things. We're in relative agreement about them. Check the box. John 4 and the beautiful questions of this woman are an incredibly strong pushback to that very narrow understanding of the gospel of Jesus. Perhaps it describes well certain religions. It does not describe Christianity. And she's starting to get it. That's why she gently pushes back on Jesus. Maybe it wasn't so gentle. I wasn't there. But in verse 12, she says, are you greater than our father Jacob? That's both a big question and a kind of offensive question because she's saying Jacob is part of the Samaritan religion. Whereas perhaps, you know, in the Old Testament, they would say our fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So she might be generally trying to push off Jesus. Do you know why? Why is she gently, maybe, maybe not gently, trying to push off Jesus? Because the very thing she so desperately wants makes her nervous. Isn't that like you? It's like me. Can my soul actually be calmed and quieted by the gospel of Jesus. 
That makes me nervous because it sounds too good to be true. That's why she says, are you greater than Jacob? And he answers indirectly. This gentle way of saying, yes. As he did when people asked if he was greater than Moses or Elijah. Her question is, is the good news really good? Will the gospel of Jesus actually satisfy my soul? Is it more than practices and intellectual assents? This is why I I try and describe us on a spectrum so there's no belief and maybe no knowledge right here, and then there's belief in God, and then there's religion, and then there's religion and faith, and then there's following Jesus. There's the religion, but there's the way, which is what Christians were called in the first century in a positive sense. Christian was a negative term. The positive term was followers of the way. And I like that language. It might sound vague to you, but it's a reminder that this is not intellectual assent and spiritual practices. This is our life and mind and soul and body and all those ways we can get tired handed over to Jesus in trust that he will father us, tend to our wounds, give us strength and hope into the future. Jesus offers himself and real satisfaction. My application, my encouragement about what to do with this sermon is to ask Jesus a question this week and then pause. Maybe do it on Wednesday, trying to give some specificity. Ask him a question and pause. And it can be a question you need an answer to, it doesn't have to be. It can be a childish question or a childlike question, and then pause. And then perhaps read Psalm 131 and take a breath. an attempt to be grasped by, to receive in a felt way the love of God the Father, the reconciliation to him that Jesus purchased on the cross that you could not purchase for yourself, and the Holy Spirit that comforts and assures us of his love. Sometime this week, get a note card if you're not into notebooks like me, and write a question on it. Pray it and maybe put your hand on it and pause He loves you and likes you. Because of the work of Jesus, you are in union with him if you have trusted him with your heart and decisions. And that makes us nervous, and yet we can receive that love and peace and joy. And perhaps you're wondering how that matters to your week. Well, first of all, it matters because it's true. And it is our most fundamental need, but it also matters in all of our relationships. Those of us that are married, if our first allegiance is to Jesus, how much more able are we to love self-sacrificially and respectfully? Those of us with parents, how much easier is it to honor them if our first allegiance is to Jesus because he loves and likes us and has called us his own? For those of us with children, and they ask questions repetitively, and we want to say, give me a second. By the way, parents, go ahead. 
when your child asks questions repetitively, go ahead and say, give me a second. And if it's give me a second, then you're like your pastor. <laughs> I've been amazed at how much a sigh and a breath from me can help me, mostly the breath. The sigh makes them think I'm mad at them, and we're, we're working on that. But if I take a breath, I then end up answering the question. I also encourage you to answer the question on their level. I also encourage you to actually answer the questions that they have. But I know that you get worn out by them. My point is, to the extent that we're grasped by the love of God the Father, we go into our places of business and we do not make our boss's job harder than it is because we know that we're loved by the Father. We do not make our employees' roles harder that day because we're a little bit upset about something that's happening because that's not what followers of Jesus do in the workplace. It is what they do sometimes, but then they apologize. And then they work the next week because they know they're loved to be a good employee or employer or child, parent or spouse because out of the overflow of God's love for us flows our neighbor love. I wonder how tired you are physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally. And do you hear a fatigued Jesus reminding us that he can relate, speaking to a woman who was tired about rest for her soul through receiving the living water that is the good news of Jesus, which is full allegiance to him as Lord. Never be thirsty forever which is an odd turn of phrase that will maybe stick in our minds. We will never be thirsty forever because we have Jesus. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, help us to receive your love, to trust it, to ignore the whisper that it's too good to be true to believe you when you say you are this living water. Amen.